Hey, everybody. We're talking to Tyran Jackson today. What an amazing guy and a new friend of mine. He's an engineer or was an engineer by day, but he's got a huge story that he wants to share with us today. He's the author of Choosing Resilience and a great speaker on the topic. Don't miss this awesome, incredible conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. This podcast dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Your host, Dallas Burnett, is the founder and CEO of Think, Move, Thrive, which exists to create cultures that others envy. His secret is learning from the best. Listen as Dallas's guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you're in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way, but it's finding out how to unlock that last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Last 10%. I'm Dallas Burnett, and I am in Thrive Studios, sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers Barber Chair. But more importantly, we've got an amazing guest today. His name is Tyran Jackson. He is a new friend of mine and just the coolest dude. Thanks for being with us on The Last 10%, Tyran. No problem, Dallas. I'll slip you that 20 later for all those great compliments. <laughs> This is a cool, cool story. You're just kind of a man of many talents. I mean, you start out, you're a graduate from Tennessee State, got all these engineering background. And then where do you, of all the places you could go practice engineering, tell the listeners who, where you actually started practicing engineering. If I go back, this goes back to my sophomore year in college. I was going through school. And I knew as I was going through middle school, high school, all that, I was a whiz at math and science. And tell you a little fun fact, it's a little geeky fact. (laughs) So I grew up in Alabama, right? And as I was going through school, I was really, really strong in math. And I was a good athlete. However, they had this competition that was like the mathletes, where you could be the one of the best (laughs) math students in the state. And I was in eighth grade. I was one of the top three mathletes. I had to go through all these different things. And I know this sounds lame and boring, but I would go to these math tournaments where, you know, you'd have to do like Jeopardy and you'd buzz in to answer questions quick. I could do amazing math in my head and see I would dream in them. (laughs) I, I say all that to say that. That led me to be really good in those subjects in high school. I knew I was going to be an engineer. So I got to Tennessee State. I started in mechanical engineering. And one of the opportunities that came my way was to do an internship after my sophomore year. And out of all the places, and I, I've always liked cars and planes and things of that nature, well, Rolls-Royce. Oh. I had the opportunity to work at Rolls-Royce for, you know, my first job, my first job out of college anyway. I say out of college because after I interned there the first summer, I realized this is something I wanted to keep coming back to. (laughs) When I graduated from undergrad, I took a full-time job there. And that was where I started my career as an engineer. That is so cool. Well, first of all, I just feel honored that I actually am getting to interview a mathlete. I've never even met a mathlete before, and you're like a champion mathlete. And I just feel like we've just upped our game here at the last ten percent. I've got to be careful because this is the place for you. Actually, the last ten percent, we did. We, we're talking in numbers already. So, and then Rolls Royce, man. Tell me about the experience. Like, how did that? What was it like working at Rolls Royce? Rolls Royce was great, and I'm going to tell everybody a secret that most people don't realize. Everybody thinks of Rolls Royce with the cars and the automobiles and how great, and and that is great and and all. And I did some work with those. However, Rolls Royce designs and builds a lot of the gas turbine engines that are used for jets, airplanes, uh, military, for the Navy, for hovercrafts, for all kinds of different applications. So I spent the majority of my career working on the aircraft side as opposed to the automotive side. But just being able to be in that environment, it's just cool to be around, you know, technology and being able to do 
things related to that. And I was a design engineer to start off, but I did a number of different rotations, I guess you could call it. I was early in my career, I was always focused on trying to achieve and do well and do better than most of the others. And this is something that going back to that lame fact about me being a mathlete, <laughs> as well as being an athlete in middle school or high school, there's a certain level of competition mm. that I think drove me. I realized I didn't like to lose. I didn't like to be second. I didn't like to struggle. Mm. And those things provide motivation for me to make sure that I do better the next time if I did. Well, that same attitude applied to me as I started going into my career. And I wanted to make sure that I was striving for the best and doing everything I could to be, you know, as successful as I possibly could be. And so in the midst of it, I was identified early in my career as what they called an ECHIP, or early career high potential. Doing that, it put me on a trajectory where they didn't want me to stay in one role for too long, but they actually moved me into different engineering positions. Mm. As I was getting, you know, more and more experience. Another fun fact, I was actually nominated, I think my third year there for a component on an aircraft design for a Black Engineer of the Year Award, a wow. national award. And so I was enjoying this. I was enjoying what I was doing. I was doing it well. And I felt as though, okay, I needed to step it up and continue to improve because I took pride in the things that I was responsible for and doing. And when we start talking about the last 10%, and I know I'm switching gears a little bit, but having that within you in order to want to achieve and want to do your best, Mm. I think it's part of the equation. And I'm getting geeky here, my engineering side. (laughs) It's part of the equation in being able to finish and get to that point where you're done and you reach whatever success is and whatever you define that in life. Mm. It starts off that you have to put in the work, but there's also other areas of it as well. And that competitive nature and that willingness and drive and push to be motivated to succeed helped me to at least get my career off on the right foot. Oh, that's so good. I love it. That's great stuff. And I agree with you 100%. And I think that's that mindset component you're talking about, the equation. I love that. The equation in living in the last 10% is you've got to know how to finish and how to finish strong. And it's got, you've got to have the drive to want to do that. So I think that's a great point. You graduated with an engineering degree. You have gotten a dream job at Rolls-Royce working on the latest and greatest technology. You've met a special someone. Tell us about that. You've kind of got life by the tail right now, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's funny. While I was at Tennessee State University, my last year of college, I actually met this young lady who and when we first met each other, she almost treated me as if I was, uh, I won't say a nobody, but she had more important <laughs> things to do. Now, she, she was a year ahead of me and she was already closer to graduating. And so she was focused on that. Her name was Malika. We met and started talking a little bit, but like I said, she didn't take me too seriously. And I'll tell a funny story. <laughs> And so she was actually a RA in the apartment complex that I lived in. And luckily for me, she was not the resident assistant for my particular building, but I would encounter her from time to time as a friend of mine's apartment. And she would be coming in there and talking about how they had garbage and trash all over the place and all of these <laughs> things. And I, and I was thinking to myself, she's cute. I'm glad she's not my RA because she would really be on me. <laughs> that was how we had our very first encounter. We crossed paths a little bit throughout the time. And as I said, she was getting ready to graduate. There was one night that it was after a college basketball game. And a couple of friends of mine, we went out to a club. To uh, It was college night at a club in Nashville, Tennessee. She happened to be there. Mm. And I saw her there with a couple of her friends. And I thought, okay, that's the girl, that's the RA that was going to find my friends a couple of days ago. (laughs) Let me me try to, you know, sweet talk her and and see how she responds. (laughs) And when I went to her and tried to talk to her, she was with her friends and she had a blue drink in her hand. And I asked her, would you like to dance with me? And she said, 
I'm drinking this blue drink. Come and take with me later. So, uh, say, Sounds okay, intense. So I let some time pass by. 20, 30 minutes, come back and I ask her again, okay, would you like to dance with me now? And she's still sipping on this blue drink. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I really don't like blue drinks right now. Right, right. So a little more time passes. And I come back one last time and I said to myself, Tyran, this is it. If she doesn't want to dance with you right now, then you're done with it. And so I ask her again and she's finally finished with that blue drink. And she <laughs> said, okay, I'll dance with you now. And we dance. And at that point, we exchange information and we start talking. And that led to her becoming my college sweetheart and uh-huh. us actually moving forward in life together, even though uh-huh. it, it's an odd occurrence. But yeah, in the midst of it, we decided as we both graduated, we started to have this liking and this liking turned into love. And before we knew it, we wanted to spend more and more time and grow together. Mm. And we both decided to move to Indianapolis where Rolls Royce was and, you know, start our careers together. And two years after that, we actually got engaged and led to getting married. So for a very, very long time, I would protest any blue drink to anybody <laughs> ever had anywhere. And I vowed not to touch it and drink a blue drink. <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. I love that story. Oh, I, I, you've got some serious, serious problems with blue drinks, and I know why. I do want to emphasize this, Dallas. I also had persistence. Yes. I was going. So, you know, <laughs> even, though, even though I didn't get the answer and the result I wanted the first time. I kept coming back. Come on back. back. Come on back. Continue to move forward with me as I progress with life. That's awesome, man. Yeah, that's great. You know how to finish, man. She's got to finish the blue drink and you got to keep on asking. (laughs) So you guys got engaged, got married, and you had great career. You were an engineer for several years. How long were you an engineer for? So I was an engineer for 18 years. I spent my first eight years actually at Rolls Royce. And just to give, I guess, a little bit of reason, but this was in Indiana. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I was from Alabama originally. She was from Chattanooga, Tennessee. So we were both from the South. Mm. While we were up there and while we were working, and it took a while. I had to adjust to the cold weather, Mm. but I did after a while. And she did too. We had our son up there. And after a couple of years, it became apparent that both of our families were seven, eight hour drives away, which was a good little distance. We didn't have any family or anything up there. The cold weather and the snow and the gloom started to wear on her from a mental standpoint and just being further away from family. So that led to having to make decisions. And the decision was, okay, we might need to relocate closer to our parents, closer to where our son could grow up near his cousins. And he was the only child. So it was like, okay, he didn't have anybody else, a playmate or anything. So we started the process of relocating somewhere down south and that got us to Atlanta. And once I got to Atlanta, I worked for a couple of different companies in the engineering space, Uh, spent some time working for GE, spent some time for another small company that focused on military engines. And I started to even, you know, increase my education levels as well. While I was at Rolls-Royce, I got my MBA. After I moved to Atlanta and was working, I got my master's from Georgia Tech. Wow. So, and we were both very committed to education and being able to leverage that in order to get the life that we wanted. That's amazing. So you're back in the South, you're married, you have a son, and things are just going fantastic. You've already got an MBA, you got a master's, you are driven and you're seeing the fruits of your investment. And so tell me a little bit about though, because things, things changed in a major dramatic way, just an amazing story. So let's talk through just kind of what led up to the event. So as time passed, Malika and I, we were definitely growing in our relationship, growing in our careers. And she actually had moved up in her career. She was a an HR professional and she moved up to a director level. Wow. And I was a, a engineering program manager for a company. And what that sort of meant was that we had, even though we were based out of here in Atlanta, we weren't here in Atlanta a lot. Mm-hmm. So one week she would be gone to Chicago for a week and I would be here with our son, you know, doing things. And then when she would get back, 
I would have to fly to LA. We were planning our life around our careers because it was always, you know, uh, I got to go to this place or I've got to do this or I got to do that. And we were in a situation where we really needed to spend time reconnecting some. And we were getting to this point, we were approaching our 15th wedding anniversary. And in doing so, we thought for our anniversary, we need to get away from the things that we're doing. We need to slow things down, put work aside, put the family, you know, aside for a little bit, get somewhere to our, you know, paradise and just spend time with each other because life was so busy and we were going so much. So leading up to that 15th anniversary, we thought, hey, we would go take a trip to the Bahamas to a beautiful, lush paradise, be able to stay at a resort, have everything all inclusive. So that was the plan that we were going to go and spend five days and have the five best days of our life together with each other Mm. and take a break from everything else that was going on in our lives. Mm, That's awesome. You make it down to the Bahamas and you guys are having the best time and walk us through what happened. So the first two days were phenomenal. I'll tell you, we got to have a great time, get to have some fruity drinks, some time at the beach, some time at the pool. We took pictures. We had a great time together and everything was going wonderful. On the third day, we thought we would go on a excursion, go on a trip. So we thought we would leave the resort and, you know, we would do this all the time. I mean, be able to go out and see even more of the island. Mm -hmm. And the intention was to be able to go and go on this four hour trip where we would be able to get to see different parts of the island. They have these big attractions of wild feral pigs that people swim with. Yeah, you get to see iguanas, you get to do all of these things. So we were like, okay, this will be another great adventure. Wake up that morning, go to breakfast. Uh, We're at this pickup spot right outside the resort. Get on the bus to ride to the marina. And we're at the marina at 845 in the morning. And 10 minutes later, we've checked in and we're getting ready to get on this boat to be able to do the excursion. They had two boats. Some people were doing an eight-hour tour. We were doing a four-hour tour. So we go to that particular boat where we're going on this tour. Us and eight other passengers. So a total of 10 passengers and the the captain and his first mate. And we're, you know, beautiful day. Weather's perfect. Everything is great. Nine o'clock, we take off from that marina and we're getting ready to start that adventure. I recall it clear and vividly. I had my right arm over Malika and I was looking off to the left as we were getting started with this trip and thinking, okay, this is going to be this another cherry on top, the apple, you know, to go along with this great adventure that we're having. And then 9.05, my life changed forever. Five minutes into this trip, find myself waking up face down on the surface of this boat. This boat is burning. I'm literally knocked unconscious. The only thing that wakes me up is as I am starting to revive, my right leg is literally on fire. Mm. I glance down at my left foot and I can see my left foot dangling. I can see my ankle bone, Mm. blood just gushing out. And at that point, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happened. Malika is not there with me. I look around. I can turn my neck, but I don't see anyone on the boat. Ten people were on that boat, and you look around, and there's no one else but you on that boat. I start to raise my head up, and the second boat that took off to do the the four-day trip, they weren't too far away from us. I look up, and I can see the passengers on that boat, and they're yelling to me. Get off the boat, get off the boat, get off the boat. And I try to push myself up, literally. Imagine if you're laying flat on your stomach. Push yourself up. You should be able to do that. But I crumble. Try to push myself up again. I didn't know it at the time. My left collarbone was broken in four places. Oh, God. So here I am in complete and utter dismay. Don't know what's happening. And the only thing that I can do 
is reach my right hand out and put my fingertips in the ridges of the surface of that boat. Just to try to pull myself away from the flames because I can feel my right leg burning up. As I'm dragging my body away from those flames, I pass out again. When I start to come to again, now, gratefully, passengers from that second boat, we weren't too far into the trip. The water was shallow. Some of them actually risked themselves to come over and drag me off the edge of the boat. I made it to the edge, but I couldn't get off of it. Uh, So they were able to get me up, get me off, put me on this second boat and go back to shore. As I wake up there, my first question is, where's Malika? Where's my wife? She was thrown in a different direction off of the boat and she was picked up by a different boat and taken to shore and she was getting carried. An ambulance was taking her to a clinic. The boat that I was on now, we came back to shore in a different location and they had to wait for a regular civilian who was passing by to actually put me on the back of a pickup truck. I was placed on a piece of plywood on the back of a pickup truck in the middle of Bahamas trying to get to this same clinic. And, you know, at this point in time, I can't move. I'm helpless. Uh, And like I said, my left foot is dangling. It is hanging on (sighs) by thread (sighs) and, and by, you know, tendons, but my ankle bone is literally out and I'm bleeding. That ride was, that was a difficult ride. And there was one passenger who was on the second boat who rode with me to the clinic and he was trying to keep me positive. And as I was talking to him, I was giving him details about what room we were staying in, the safe code to the room where the passports were. Oh my gosh. Gave him my mom's phone number, my sister's phone number. Now this is an amazing individual. His name is Chris Clark. He's an NFL or retired NFL football player, offensive lineman. Played wow. for Carolina Panthers and played for the Houston Texans. And I say all of this to say that in the midst of everything that was going on, one, he was big enough to be able to carry me first. <laughs> so he carried me with ease and was able to help get me on the back of this truck and out of the water. And so he's a lifesaver. But he was able to remember all of this information. Wow. All of these numbers, all oh of this. And I you know, tried to tell him, call my sister, call my mom, and, and make sure you get to our room and get to the passports and all. And he was trying to keep me encouraged and tell me that Malika was going to be okay. It's amazing that you had the presence after such trauma to have the clarity you needed to remember all of those numbers and everything to tell them. I mean, you had tremendous clarity for having just gotten burned and blown up on a bus. I mean, that's unbelievable. You're laying on this flyboard going to the, and you're being able to tell this guy all the, th- that's incredible. I tell you, all that training with having numbers go through my head growing up, it probably helped me out in that moment. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> there were a lot of digits, a lot of numbers, a lot of patterns. And yeah, anyway, I think it helped me to be able to convey that to him. Wow. And I also credit him for being able to remember that information. Sure. And so anyway, as I fast forward, as I get to this clinic, I'm put on a stretcher and the EMT gets me out, puts me on the stretcher and they wheel me into this clinic. As I'm being wheeled in, I could hear Malika. I could hear her moans, her Mm. yells. She was in agony and I couldn't do anything about it. Now, there were three of us who were horribly injured. And just to give a little bit of insight, we were sitting above the fuel tank on the boat and there was a fuel leak that emanated from that fuel tank. (sighs) So we were right above where the explosion occurred. And so, and there was one other passenger on that side of the boat with us and the other seven were on the opposite side. They were able to jump off of the boat and get off with minor damage or without having to deal with the brunt of the impact. But me, Malika, and then one other young lady were horribly injured because we were on that side where that leak occurred. As I mentioned, I was being wheeled into this clinic and I could hear my wife and I could hear her in agony and I could do nothing about it. And there was one doctor and that doctor was working on her and working on the other young lady. And when he finally got to me, my first question is, how is my wife? And is she all right? 
And what the doctor told me was that we wouldn't be able to treat you here, that we're going to send you and this one other passenger to the good hospital. So we're about to put you on an airplane and fly you to Nassau to where you can get better treatment. And my question was, what about my wife? And he told me that, okay, she will come later. She will be there later. And I'm thinking to myself, that means that she must not be injured as badly as I am. Right. Okay. She must be doing okay if they're going to keep her here. And they told me my injuries were so bad that I had to go where there was better treatment. I rationalized this to myself that, okay, I'm glad that she's going to be okay. Whatever they're going to do to me, they're going to do to me, but she's going to be all right. I get to this good hospital and they put me into emergency surgery. And my first question to them is, where's Malika? Has she gotten here yet? As they're starting to prep me for this, I'm thinking she's coming right behind me. They prepare me to go into surgery. And what they choose to do is basically take my left foot and try to pin it back to my leg and try to, you know, say salvage that. And I'll get into that a little bit later why that was not a good decision. But the next thing I know, I find myself waking up in ICU. It's about seven hours later. And as I wake up in ICU, two doctors come in the room. And my first question is, where's Malika? Two doctors, they look at each other and then they leave the room. That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. Think Move Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. Leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams. We help technical managers be more relational. And we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful. We created the app to help more organizations develop their people, build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. And I'm Mm. thinking to myself, this is an obvious question. Why did they have to leave the room? I know she's on her way here. Yeah. Has she arrived yet? Yeah. The two doctors, after a couple of minutes, they come back in and they tell me, Mr. Jackson, your wife didn't make it. And I'm thinking to myself, and I'm trying to be positive and optimistic. She didn't make it. There must have been a problem with the airplane. There Mm. must have been a problem with her getting here. But I know she was supposed to be arriving later. So what's the mix-up? She must still be on her way. She died at that clinic. And they didn't want to tell you. And so here I am. And now I'm having to start to process. It's bad enough I've been involved in this accident. And that this, you know, this, what was supposed to be a wonderful milestone, phenomenal situation, time in our lives, a time to celebrate has now tragically gone in a different direction. But I was thinking that we were both going to be okay. Now, the woman who I've built, you know, my wife, the mother of my child, my lover, my best friend, person who I was trying to build an empire with is no longer here. And I have to process that. It's hard. I found myself not understanding how to deal with that and crying myself to sleep that night. And so that was the first night of heartbreak, emotional pain, and having to try to even come to grips with this that I had to face. Wake up the next morning. I had to do something else that I never thought I'd have to do. So our son, I had dropped him off to stay with his aunt and uncle for a couple of days. He was going to stay with them for the, you know, five days while we were on vacation. Right. And this wasn't the first time that we had dropped him off to stay with this family on vacation while we were on vacation. Right. He enjoyed the getaway normally. He knows mom and dad are going to come back home and I'm going to get some time with my cousins, all of this. Well, I have to call him over the phone and tell him, son, your mom's not coming home. Him losing it 
to come to grips to realize that mom and dad went on vacation, but mom's not coming back. And as a parent, you don't want to see your children have to deal with pain and hurt and to have to hear, have to break this news to him was one of the hardest things I could have imagined. I can't imagine so, that. That's just, it's almost hard to process. I mean, especially after what you've just gone through, it's just like you've had so much that you had to make it just to survive. And then yeah. you survive. And then once you kind of come to and you're like, okay, I'm in a good hospital, I'm getting treatment. Then it's just like, as much <clears throat> as your physical body was completely just, you know, shattered, then it's just like emotional and spiritual state just blown yes. up as well, just right after that. So I, I cannot imagine. There's a little bit more to it, Dallas. Even later that day, as I mentioned, they tried to reattach my foot to my leg. Mm. So it, my foot was infected and it started getting infection to go through my body. As I was laying there that afternoon, there was an EKG monitor that was over my head and I could see all of my vitals go from green to yellow to red. And I'm laying there and I'm praying and I'm thinking to God and I'm saying, okay, you've already taken my wife. I've had to break my son's heart by telling him his mom is no longer here. And now I'm about to die. I'm about to close my eyes for the last time. And in this, when I talk about being broken, I was in my truest state of despair. I was broken at that point physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I was angry at God for why did this have to happen to us? And I thought, as I said, I was going to go to sleep for the last time and not wake up again because my heart rate, my blood pressure, everything was turning through the roof. And so I found myself once again crying myself to sleep, thinking that, okay, this is it. Now, through the grace of God, I wake up that next morning. And when I wake up, I come to find out that my Sister, my brother-in-law, and my mom had flown from Nashville, Tennessee to Fort Lauderdale, Florida to the Bahamas wow. to try to help get out of there. And this is all due to Chris, the guy who was with me, letting them know that we were in a horrible accident before they were ever notified by the government or by anybody. Making these movements to come and try to see what happened and save me before mm. it was actually, they were communicated formally. Wow. In the midst of all of that, I, the next day I was being picked up by air ambulance and flown to a trauma center in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where they could actually treat me. And once they got me there, they told my family that we've got to do whatever we can to make sure that he lives. They said that if I would have stayed in the Bahamas two more days, I definitely would have died. Gosh. One more day, probably would have died. Put me into emergency surgery. And at that point, they had to take my left leg below the knee. Infection had started spreading so much and they had to take it there to keep it from going any further. Wow. So I had to go through surgery on that day. And then over the course of four days, I had to go through eight surgeries just for <laughs> them to start putting me back together. If I give you the full rundown physically of what I had to face, I had a broken right foot that they had to put screws and pins in. I had third degree burns on my right leg. I had a fractured pelvis, a fractured vertebrae, bruised ribs. As I stated, my collarbone was broken in four places. They had to put a titanium plate and multiple screws in there for me to be able to, you know, move my shoulder or hopefully heal one day. I've got, yeah. I tell you something funny. I got more bolts and screws in place in me than a fastener aisle at Home Depot. <laughs> 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 I love it. Oh, man. That's so good. As an engineer, I appreciate that because yeah. you got to do these things to put things back together. That's right. And, and so, I, look, they did what they needed for me to physically be able to recover and heal from what happened. And I can remember clear as day. There was one day. And so the timing is ironic. It was July the Fourth, I had to go through four surgeries where they did all of these different things to me. Wow. And while everybody else was enjoying barbecue and fireworks and all, I was fighting for my life. My vitals mm. were still all over the place. I was still unstable. But that next day, July the 5th, 
as I was starting to heal and recover from those surgeries, it became clear to me. If God wanted to take me, he could have taken me when that boat exploded. He could have taken me in the hospital in the Bahamas where all my vitals were all over the place, where they were red. He could have taken me after going through all those surgeries. But I was still here and he was keeping me here and keeping me here for a reason. And at that point, it became somewhat clear that the worst physically was going to be behind me. That moving forward, that he was keeping me here for a purpose and a reason that was greater than what I could understand. And in the midst of it, it was clear that I wasn't going to be able to go back to the life that I had. Mm. That the life that I had, the Tyrann Jackson that had made it to that point, was a person who did what he needed to do to provide for his family, did what he needed to to take care of things, and was faithful and a believer, but operated in a certain space that I planned, that I thought made sense. The version of me that was going to move forward was going to have a different purpose, a different reason, that Mm. my future was going to be different. And even though it was uncertain and unclear to me what that future was going to be, The thing that stood out was that I was going to have to make a choice, and that choice was to be resilient. And by choosing resilience, I was going to be suited and have that mindset and that approach to get past the obstacles that were in front of me. The other things that I faced earlier in life might have made it, you know, where I could deal with some minor obstacles every now and then here and there. But I was going to have to be resilient on a whole nother level to be able to get back to a point where physically I might be able to move again and walk again one day, that I might be able to, you know, rebound emotionally, to be able to be a parent to my son, father to him and help raise him without my former wife being there. I had a slew of challenges that I didn't even know what was to come. But the moment I made that choice to be resilient, that prepared me for what I was going to have to face going forward. It's just so amazing that you chose that way to respond to this situation. And I love that it was so intentional. You know, it was so deliberate. It wasn't like you just woke up and you felt like it was going to be okay or you were having a good, you went through this process and you got to the end of it and you were like, this is what I choose. I choose resilience. And I love that. And it really just, Seems like it has completely shaped and shifted the entire trajectory of your life past that point. For the listeners of the last 10%, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that means. And if you don't mind, unpack, and that could be what it means to you and or what it means in general to choose resilience. What does that resiliency mean to you? And what does that look like in your life after this horrific event? So in the midst of this, Resilience has been a word that I feel like I embody. And resilience means a number of different things. It has a number of different definitions. But what I like to say and believe is resilience does not mean losing what was lost, but reshaping what is left. The man that I was in the past, I couldn't go back to that. The engineer, the career, the approach towards life, I couldn't go back to that. My perspective had to change for me to be able to bounce back and go where I needed to go to in order for me to be able to face and deal with. The doctor said, "Okay, you're going to go probably six to eight months before you'll ever be physically capable of being able to be fitted with the prosthetic and able to walk again. I was going to have to do all kinds of rehab. I was going to have to do all kinds of occupational therapy work to be able to move my arm and to be able to one day be able to stretch my leg out. I was in the hospital and lost 30 pounds of muscle simply because I wasn't eating. I was facing not only the physical matters and challenges, I had to go through the mental challenge as well, face depression, anxiety, PTSD survivor's remorse. All of these things are challenges that I never had to deal with before. And Mm -hmm. then to have all of them stacked on top of me at once could be overwhelming. But I kept thinking back to this piece about being resilient 
and being able to cope with, to deal with, to overcome, to bounce back, whatever's facing me, what type of will, what type of determination do I have to move forward? It became clear to me that, okay, the goal was not just to survive this, but to thrive from it. And I look back at different memories and reflections of my life before and use those to pull out pieces to help motivate and push me to move forward. I found myself as I was going through my physical healing process and thinking back to some of these times, there was a conversation that Malika and I, we had, and it was actually about a year before we went on this vacation. Mm -hmm. And it was one of these what if conversations. And the way that the question that came up was, what if something were to happen to me and I were no longer here? And in the midst of it, what Malika told me was that if something were to happen to her and she was no longer here, that she would want me not to grieve for too long. She'd want me to be able to go forward in life and be happy if I could find love again to find love. But she told me this. She said, the one thing that I'd better do was make sure that the only part of her that would still be here on this earth was well taken care of. And if I were to find somebody else, that they better treat him as if he was her own. In the midst of this, what that did was that created a sense of motivation. I had to get back on my feet so I could be there and raise our son, Cameron. Make sure that he was good, you know, with moving forward with life. I was here to turn him from a child to a young man man and raise him in a perspective and in a way for him to be able to, to deal with this and become emotionally and mentally strong. I had to go forward with the grief therapy and counseling and the mental recovery that came along with bouncing back. But all of these go back to that theme of resilience. Yes. And for me to be able to get to that last 10%, for me to move forward, it was intended for me to have that motivation and that resilience to bounce back and to move forward. I think I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, because it's just profound. When you said it's not about getting back what was lost, it's about reshaping what's left. I mean, I cannot, the definition of resilience, when you get down to it, if you try to get back what's lost, it's futile. It's a futile effort. And so it's impossible the more you try, the further it goes away, you know? And so I could see how if you feel that loss by trying to get it back, you're holding on to it, it's going to create tremendous amount of bitterness, tremendous amount of anger, frustration, hopelessness, because you just can't get there. And yet when you turn around and your perspective on that is just incredible. But when you say we're reshaping what's left, all of a sudden, that just opens up unbelievable opportunity for purpose and meaning. Because now all of a sudden you go, what is left? I've got a son. And my purpose is, one of my purposes is to make sure that he's taken care of and he grows into a man that he needs to be. And that's not regaining what was lost. That's reshaping what's left. And I think that is the most beautiful way to think about resilience because It gets down to the fundamentals, like now you have something to live for. The focus is on how you're moving forward. You know, the encouraging piece is somebody's lost a job or they've lost a loved one or their their career's off track or their business is failing. It's not about getting back what's lost. Resiliency is is reshaping what's left. So I, I just, that is just a powerful message. And, you know, I appreciate that on that. So let's talk about that a little bit more. Let's finish out that resiliency piece. And then I want to talk about what's behind you there. I want to touch on this as it relates to what we're talking about here with the last 10% with the mindset and the approach with people who are going through challenges and going through things that might not be going their way. Being able to reshape what's lost is a step in becoming unstuck. A lot of people who are holding on to trying to get back what they had or what they were They find themselves in a place of stagnation. You're looking back as opposed to moving forward. And this is a part for me, as I was proactively trying to address my mental and emotional health, as well as my physical as a part of my recovery, I knew that I couldn't do these things by myself. I needed to get experts and people involved. 
But all of these things helped my healing process, helped my recovery process. It helped me get to a point where I wasn't fixated on what the past was, but I could actually productively look at how I was going to move forward powerfully. Think that when we talk about finishing and reaching our goals in life, getting through that last 10%, that is part of the mindset that we have to have in order to overcome what we face in front of us. I want to talk a little bit about, we are, we've got some things in common. So we found this before the show. Number one, we both drove on a lot of the same streets when we both lived in Atlanta and didn't know that. And that was really cool. <laughs> so uh, shout out yep. to all our friends in Atlanta. The other thing that we found out that we have in common is we both have core values, our core values, not just visible, not just written down, but literally printed and hanging on a wall. You actually have them hanging on the wall behind you now. And so I'd love to hear about your take on those core values, what they mean to you, how they've helped you in this recovery. And also, if you want to talk about the map to recovery and all that. Yes, about that. As I was going through my journey to recovery, there were certain things that became more and more themes that I just knew I had to do. Being able to be consistent. I had to go through physical therapy consistently. I had to go through mental, uh, emotional therapy consistently because as a we all should strive for progress. I realized that by doing these things consistently, I was getting closer and closer to my goal. The doctors told me it was going to be eight months probably before I walked again, but I was doing my physical therapy as I needed to when I had someone with me and when I didn't. And I was pushing myself. And three and a half months later, I was walking. Wow. And, and that consistency led to more desire to do more. And that led to me not just walking, but then jogging. Mm. And jogging turned into running. And oh then before gosh. I knew it, I found myself running. And I've never been a runner in my life. But about nine months after the accident, I ran my first 5K. Oh, my goodness and then gracious. Two months later, I ran my next 5K. Oh. And someone, now, you got to keep in mind, I've got a prosthetic leg. I had to learn how to one, run, and it takes a lot more energy to do these things. <laughs> and it doesn't feel as good as you. I mean, there's a lot of things that you have to factor into it. But having that consistency of saying, I'm going to do this, mm. that determination, that focus to be able to say, this is what I've got to accomplish. This is what I've got to do. And these are the steps that I've got to take to get there. They are there are principles that I live by and that I help to encourage others. Having the right attitude, the right effort, those are things that you can control. When I talk about my map towards helping people get through what they encounter and getting to their desired goal and destination in life, resiliency is the key piece of that. But there is a map and my map consists of the motivation, what's getting you up out of bed to drive you to do what you need to do to be that, build that consistency, to actually build those habits. The A stands for the attitude. You know, it can be regardless of the situation, you have control of how much attitude you put into things mm. and how much effort you put into them. Mm. What is your approach and what type of mood are you allowing yourself to be in when you have to face those challenges? That's something that you have to understand. The final part of that map for me there's a couple of pieces to this, but that piece stands for a number of different things. It can stand for your purpose, because when you're purpose driven, it makes getting up and doing the things you need to do so much easier. So great. The P is part of a process. Now, that's where the geeky engineer comes back to mind. <laughs> and what I had. But I am one of those people who thinks that, OK, if I want to get somewhere, I have to figure out what's the first step and then what's the next step in that process. And then if I can see it in that way, then I know that if I just stick with it, I'm going to get there. Just awesome, keep putting man. those habits in. The P also stands for persistence, yes. not being denied. And so anyway, I know we're talking about a lot of different things. There is so much to unpack that I've learned through my journey of what I had to go through in Dallas. I'll tell you, I think I would have been a you know, uh, continue to grow in my career as an engineer. And I would have been able to do things that I was, that Malika and I were planning 
and continue to grow and move in the right direction had life not changed, but it did. And I had to face that. And I had to face this new version of who I was becoming and these core values are a part of the man that I became. I went through an amazing transformation as a result of what I dealt with. In doing so, my purpose is clear. It's great. I help inspire. I help those who are going through trauma, through tragedy, through transformation in life or any transition in life, get to that point of transformation so they can be triumphant. And I understand how that comes to play. My map has been revealed to me. I like to help other people find their map. Dallas, I know that it's not. No, that's not. But it's all so good. I mean, because so many people struggle and, you know, a lot of times people will struggle and they're showing up and they show up and then they go home and they're living in just tremendous pain and they're not letting people know. And I think what you are doing is encouraging people because we all have trials. We all have struggles. We all have things that don't go our way. We don't get to the mark. We don't make the mark that we're shooting after or something that's completely unexpected. Just in your case, you had no control over that circumstance. And yet you have responded in such a way that's so powerful. It's so encouraging. I love to hear you speak with so much passion and you just feel it just oozing, man. I love that. It just gives me so much energy. But you know, I think the encouraging part is like, if you're going through something that's extremely difficult and something's happened that's not even, that you had no control over, you don't have to live in despair and you don't have to live in pity. You can look at, just like you were saying, we're reshaping what's left and just not trying to get back what's lost, just looking forward. And you just gave the most beautiful picture of how you get there and how you find motivation, how that can shape your attitude and how you can find purpose and process on the other side. All of that. I mean, there's no wonder that you're living in the last 10%. There's no wonder you finish strong and you continue to. And I mean, you've probably already at this point run more 5Ks than me and probably could beat me today if we went and run. I'm just saying, I wouldn't race you. I can tell you that right now. There's no way I'm racing you in a 5K. So uh, um, I think that's so valuable. And I think that's such a great perspective. It's very encouraging to me. And, and I know it's encouraging to our listeners as well. Let's finish this and, and just talk a little bit about you know, how people can get in touch with you and what you're doing now, because now there's a new Tyran now. This is, he's not an engineer now. He's doing something different. Tell us about that. Tell us about what you do now and then tell us how people can get in touch with you. Where my career, where life is taking me now, my platform is called Reborn Resilient. And I say that because going through that day, I was reborn. When I came out on the other side of that accident, I became a different man. I was transformed in ways that I didn't imagine. And the resiliency, I exemplify that. I embody it. As far as being able to reach me, uh, you can go to my website. It's RebornResilient.com. Find me on Instagram and Facebook on my business at Reborn Resilient. Or you can look up my name, Tyran Jackson, T-I-R-A-N Jackson. You can find me through LinkedIn. And what I'm doing is I am, I consider myself a next level motivational speaker. I'm an inspirational speaker. And I try to make sure in in, in the midst of that, I also have clients that I coach and I work with to help them get that map on how they're going to bounce back when they're facing adversity. We all have our challenges. We all have our adversity. We all have our times that we don't think that we can do it. And sometimes we need a little bit of help in order to help us get through there. So that's where the resiliency and accountability coaching that I do comes into play. And you can learn more about that at RebornResilient.com. And hey, by the way, I'm an author too. And my yes. book, Choosing Resilience, talks about that story and some of the ways where finding my purpose came to play as part of the pain that I had to go through. That is so good. So we'll put up those links in the show notes. And so if you guys are interested, you please, please do check it out. And uh, one last thing before we go, we always ask the guest, is there anyone that you would like to see or hear on the last 10%? Anyone who I'd like to hear on the last 10%. You know, there there are numerous stories, numerous people who have powerful stories that help get them through 
various challenges, situations, and circumstances that we endure. I'm going to tell you a story. I have one more quick story. <laughs> that's I, great. I won't last too long, and that's going to get to a person who I think might be ideal or great to talk about the last 10%. Love it. So I was in the hospital bed. This was that same day in which it became clear to me that I needed to choose resilience. I was watching TV on in the hospital TV. And I am not a big fan. At least I wasn't a big fan of this show. Ironically, American Ninja Warrior was on the screen. And that's what I was watching. And as I was laying there in the hospital bed, I saw these different athletes come up. And there was this one athlete who came up and he was an amputee. And he stood at the start and he actually took his leg off. Oh my and gosh. And was going to go through this course on one leg. And I was thinking to myself, <laughs> this had to be destined. I don't watch this show, but I'm watching it right now. And I'm watching these people do these amazing feats. And I'm starting to feel, I don't know physically how I'm ever going to recover. And I know I've, my leg has been taken away from me. And I'm going to have to be an amputee if I ever wanted to walk again. And I see this guy come up there, take his leg off be an amputee and bounce through these trampolines and oh, over this water and grabbing gosh. these ropes and all of that. It turns out that his name was Zach Gowan. Zach Gowan. He actually was an amazing athlete and individual. He was actually a professional wrestler at one point in time in the WWE with one <laughs> leg. <laughs> and so <laughs> this guy, so, and, oh man. About this in part of my book, Choosing Resilience, as if I needed more inspiration and motivation as I was going through what I was facing, yeah. I am literally coming to grips with the fact that I'm going to be an amputee for the rest of my life. And I see this guy pop up on American Ninja Warrior and he's doing things. And that gave me even more belief that I could overcome what I was going to face. Granted, I wasn't planning to be on American Ninja Warrior, but <laughs> I knew I could. It gave me hope that I could bounce back. Wow. Uh, That's somebody who, you know, he has a story too. And Zach and I connected and he actually wrote a portion of my endorsement for the book, Choosing Resilient. It was something that I, you know, just when you think about who gives you hope and inspiration to overcome the challenges that you're facing, that was something that it was a rerun. It was timely. It just so happened to be what was on that day. And that gave me hope that, okay, maybe I can bounce back. So, man, that is just so incredible. I love all your stories and I love your <laughs> sense of humor. I just love everything. I love I love that you're a mathlete. This is all good. What a day. This has been the best show. All right. So let's talk about some quick takeaways. So number one, I loved how you talked about being driven in the beginning and how you just had a lot of focus and drive and how that helped you. You just propel yourself forward and you just seem to move in areas that you are just naturally gifted in. You just had a gift for math. You didn't try to reject that and go some other. You just said, look, let's run with this. And you did it. And I think that's so important for people to know their strengths and just lean on them and run hard. And I think that's a great takeaway from today. I think that your quote about, you know, reshaping what's left was just one of my favorites. I think also the last thing you just said was also just the best. That's why you let you were saving these little nuggets in the last till the last story. But that idea where you saw somebody that they were doing something that you knew you would have to do, it gave you a vision of something that you could believe in. Like, if that guy can go into a Ninja Warrior course with one leg, I can do this. I just love the imagery that you use to describe that and the hope that that gives you to move forward. I think that you have been just the best guest today. And uh, man, it's been so much fun to talk with you and, and just share all of what's going on in your life. And I just, I'm very thankful for you. I'm thankful for your story and I'm thankful for your resilience. And I'm thankful for your willingness to share it with us and, and our listeners. So um, we'll put the show notes up. Please, everybody, buy the book, Choosing Resilience by Tyran Jackson. Buy it, buy it, buy it. Read it, read it, read it. <laughs> and touch base with him if you're looking for an amazing, inspirational speaker. We'd love to support him in that way. So thanks for being with us. And uh, Tyran, thanks again, man. Thanks for being no on the problem, show today. All right. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us today on The Last 10%. 
We hope you found today's content engaging and encouraging. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear the latest episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us so others will join our community. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. This podcast can be found globally in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Subscribe today. Plus, visit our website, join our email list, and discover resources and info for your business and team at thinkmovethrive.com. Thanks again for listening to The Last 10%.